Welcome back, everybody, all you e-discovery fans, uh, public records disclosure officers, attorneys, litigation support specialists, uh, machine learning enthusiasts, and all who love to listen to the Xilab podcast. My name is Jay Schneider. I'm the Director of Professional Services for Xilab North America. With me is Brenda Dodd, our Government Technology Director. Hey, Brenda. Hey, Jay. It's been a while. It's good to be back in the studio recording another episode of the Xilab podcast. Uh, Brenda, we have been traveling a lot the past month. Yeah, we sure have. I think I've been on at least 16 different flights in three weeks. <laughs> I think we've hit uh, both coasts, uh, or yeah, we've hit both coasts of the U.S. between us and, and the center of the U.S. as well as going international, but we'll talk about that in a moment. But Brenda, I want to ask you a trivia question. Okay, shoot. <laughs> All right, so Brenda, I know you love sports in Pittsburgh. Of course. This question does not have anything to do with uh, your Pittsburgh teams. I'll just put that out there in the beginning. Darn. <laughs> All right. So, Brenda, what is the second most popular sport in the world? Ooh, second most popular sport in the entire world? In the um, entire world. Hmm. It has to be something that everyone plays. And um, I'm going to say, well, it's one of my favorite sports. I doubt if this is the correct answer, but I'm going to say golf. Golf. Ooh, interesting choice. Uh, I believe golf made it onto the top 10, though I don't have the top 10 in front of me, so that could be complete fictional information. Um, actually, the second most popular sport in the world is cricket. How about that? Cricket? Did you know that? No, I, yes, and, and I never in a million years would have guessed cricket. Yeah, so I think uh, the, the easy answer is number one sport in the world, uh, most popular sport in the world, soccer slash football, depending where you are and how you re refer to it. Uh, the second most is cricket, also popular in Commonwealth countries uh, uh, around the world. Um, but Brenda, my second follow-up question for you is in the United States, where clearly cricket is not the most popular sport, in the United States, where is the largest cricket complex located? Any idea? <laughs> Again, I would not have a clue, although I think you're going to tell me. <laughs> I, I am going to tell you. I'll let you off the hook. Uh, the largest cricket complex in the United States is located in Prairie View, Texas. So Prairie View, Texas is Wait, where the Prairie View, Texas? Is. Now, isn't Texas yes. really known for football? Yes, it is, but apparently cricket is making inroads there as well. And Brenda, do you know how I know this? How do you know this, Jay? Um, because, Brenda, when I was at the Smart Cities Connect uh, conference in Denver, I met the mayor of Prairie View, Texas, and he educated me on uh, the popularity of cricket in the world and how uh, that Prairie View, Texas is the largest cricket complex in the United States. I think I do recall, and I definitely recall meeting the mayor of Prairie View, Texas, but I think I just blocked out the whole cricket aspect of it. <laughs> to me, cricket is really not a sport. I, Sorry if that offends anyone out there who may be listening. Well, apparently, being the second most popular sport in the world, it will probably offend a lot of the population, but I don't know how many of our listeners are cricket fans. Uh, but, Brenda, yes, you and I, among our many travels and events that we went to, was the Smart Cities Connect uh, conference in Denver. And I thought it was a fascinating conference because we were able to see cities that were really trying to be smart in their use of technology uh, for managing everything from efficient streetlights to managing traffic, uh, you know, using technology to better their services, their citizenry, their, their government. Um, and of course, we were there 
uh, representing Xilab to help uh, city governments in their managing um, of, of data and records, make sure they're securely available to the public as well, which is convenient, Brenda, that we're talking about this because what is our topic today, Brenda? Well, Jay, today we are going to talk about the Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA. Some may also know these types of acts as the Open Records Act, or the Right to Know laws, or even Sunshine laws. But basically, in a nutshell, um, these are the laws that keep citizens in the know about their government. Um, and really, they're intended to increase transparency, accountability, and supposedly, Jay, reduce corruption and ethical violations within the government. But, Jay... Uh -oh. Before we get to our topic, and keeping with our pursuit of trivial knowledge, I have a question for you. Oh, yes. Turnabout is fair play. Go, Brenda. Okay, Jay. Do you know on which federal holiday the Freedom of Information Act was signed into law? Ooh, so, so it was signed into law on a holiday. Uh, I, uh, I'll probably say not... I don't know, but let me see if I can reason this out. It's probably not New Year's because that's going to be, you know, we're all busy or not not in session. Um, uh, wow. I wonder, is it related to the holiday? I don't know, Brenda. Just, just tell me. It was actually signed into law on July 4th, Independence Day in 1966. Oh, cool. All right. So they signed it on July 4th. Uh, Freedom of Information Act. I did not know that. I will try and burn that into my memory. Yes. So just a little bit of history on the Freedom of Information Act, Jay. In the mid-50s, there was a, um, a politician, I believe he's a Democrat named John Moss from the state of California, and he started advocating uh, for open government after President Eisenhower's administration denied his request for information regarding the firing of several thousand federal employees um, who were being accused of being communist. Pretty interesting, oh, huh? Oh, yeah, yes. it is interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But, well, but I got a little <laughs> bit more information for you. It wasn't until like the mid-60s, um, I think it was like 1966, actually, when Moss gained the support from the Republican Party, specifically that of Donald Rumsfeld. At the time... Don Rumsfeld, really? Yes. Wow. So at the time, Rumsfeld's primary interest was that he thought FOIA would help uncover information that would embarrass then-President Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> this is exciting. This is really interesting to, to understand that sometimes how uh, things get done might be different motivations to get the same item achieved. Um, exactly. That's, uh, yep. So, That's yeah, so actually, and then President Johnson, who, as you can imagine, was against the bill, he ultimately ended up signing it on July 4th, 1966. Um, and remember how I said that the intent of FOIA is to really increase transparency and, and to reduce, supposedly reduce corruption and ethical violations? Well, then it should yes. come, well, then you shouldn't be surprised to learn that significant changes to strengthen the act actually came about after Watergate. Of course, of course, that, that would make perfect sense. Yeah, so it kind of makes you wonder what future changes may be in store for FOIA. Stay tuned. Yes. Um, we'll but, Linda, I think it's a great topic. Um, of course, many of our uh, uh, customers and people who use Xilab One are using it for uh, public records, and and we here in the United States as well as in Europe uh, work with a lot of governments that are uh, proponents and advocates for 
open data, open records. Uh, but of course, uh, you know, we need to be able to handle those correctly. So where do we start, Brenda? Where do we start? So um, as you know, Jay, we recently attended the FOIA Advisory Committee meeting back in March. Yes, wow. on our busy list of events that we attended and participated in, I almost forgot we were at the FOIA Advisory Committee meeting. Yeah, I know. It seems like it was ages ago. Um, for, and for those of you who are listening who are not familiar with the FOIA Advisory Committee, uh, this is a committee that's comprised of um, representatives from not only agencies, but also the requester community. And it was formed um, by the National Archives and Record Administration um, a few years back to help improve the uh, federal agency's FOIA operations. So basically, this committee is tasked with studying federal FOIA activity and soliciting public comments and then reporting back their recommendations um, to the arch archivists of the United States. Um, and Jay, at that meeting, as you know, we had a chance to listen to a couple of professors from the University of, I believe it was American University and Syracuse Anna, uh, mm -hmm. University. And they presented some interesting findings related to the FOIA trends based on their analysis of the data from these federal agencies uh, during a time period of 2008 and 2016. Well, Brenda, well, how about I'm going to let you uh, give us some of those insights on the caseload uh, data and observations, and I will provide color and commentary. Okay, that sounds great. Um, what they determined based on their review of the, the data would, really should come as no surprise to us. And that is the fact that FOIA is an administrative obligation that has a huge financial burden. Um, so with regard to the caseload, they noticed that there has been a steady increase in not only the, the number of requests that are being made, but also in the backlog. So the backlog is really the, the requests that aren't being answered timely. So these agencies just continuously con build up this backlog of requests that they're trying to tackle as um, they are also receiving new requests on a daily basis. And Jay, uh, back in 2008, when they started recording these numbers, I'm sure they have records prior to that, but in 2008 was the first year that they started, uh, they based their analysis on, there were approximately 561,000 requests that were being made. Um, in 2016, there were around 790. In 2018, we're, we're expected to well exceed over 800,000 requests. Wow, so I wouldn't be surprised if, I mean, on that trend, we're, we're looking, uh, we're very close to a million requests per year in the coming years. And given we were talking about earlier, given a lot of the, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe some polarization or, or, or yeah, some some challenges with the, the the government now thinking that might even spike even more. And when you think about it, Jay, these are federal agencies and the numbers for federal agencies alone. Can you imagine all of the hundreds or thousands of local, state and local government agencies, um, not to mention universities that are also receiving these requests for information? So it's just a constant barrage of people re people, not just people, but also the media. So people that are under, are listening who may not be aware, the media actually requests a large portion of these FOIA or requests. Um, and that's the basis of a lot of the, the, the news that we hear or articles that we read today. I think it's pretty interesting. And, stuff. Well, 
And what I will say on that, Brenda, is because I'm absolutely an advocate and proponent that uh, the public has a right to this information. They should make these requests. Um, occasionally, I will see an article or a snippet about uh, how uh, you know there was a request for information, and the uh, government entity at whatever level you know made some claim that it would be an expensive cost or time. And sometimes I see it presented as a you know, the, the government agency was dragging its feet or putting undue costs, whereas I know from your and my perspective working from, I'm going, wow, that we know how hard it is and how much time and effort and costs that these overworked, understaffed government agencies have to respond to these requests. And, you know, and we understand how hard that is, but I don't think the general public necessarily understands how, how what a challenge it is. No, I definitely don't think that they, they really have a full grasp or understanding of, of what is really required and needed from these agencies. Um, so what's the, okay, sorry, so, so seeing the challenges, what, what's the trend? Where are things going? What, what, what else do they have to say? Um, well, along with the increase, they, they took a look at like the types of requests that were being made. And I found it really, very interesting that the highest number of requests that were being um, made to these agencies were actually related to personal information. So information about me or you or yourself, um, as well as information about national security. The national security, of course, did not surprise me. Um, mm -hmm. This really led to an interesting conversation about how one of the re recommendations by the, the committee was for improve, uh, an improvement that suggested that costs could be reduced if there were more proactive release of information. So they were suggesting that these agencies should just automatically be um, producing or disclosing information out on, say, like a, a, read, a, a reading site or a library site or their own dis uh, portal. Um, so that the public would not the public would not have to actually file a request it would just be readily available my thought however was you know considering that this type of information it really can't be proactively re released due to the nature of the information that's being requested primarily it's probably PII or other sensitive information when you think about um, national security so to me this really suggests that something else must be done to improve uh, the costs and efficiencies of the FOIA process. And what do you think that, and Jay, and what, in your opinion, what do you think that that, that solution would be? Uh, my unbiased but totally biased answer is technology can help. Am I right, Brenda? Absolutely, absolutely. There's no, no doubt. Definitely, I mean, yeah, no, definitely. And as, as we as we talk, I have talked before and we'll talk again, including today, um, absolutely, it's, it's at a point where uh, it, you need some technology to help because the volumes, I mean, if you're looking at this for the estimated federal alone of 800,000 requests per year, to say nothing of the fact that the amount and volume of data that just exists, uh, you, you can't manually go through that. You, you just, just can't do it. We need, uh, we need technology solutions to help support and have a smart uh, method of disclosure and getting this information out to the public. Yeah, definitely. I just don't see in this day and age how agencies are going to ever stay above water, let alone address their backlog, without having the benefit of some advanced technology to assist them. Well, definitely. I mean, it, again, an example that just because it's easy to, to, to relate to is redactions alone. Um, and we see this often because, you know, there's all this talk about, okay, getting, getting data out or documents out, but we need to redact information. Redactions alone 
you know, if if you're manually redacting information, I mean, good luck trying to get everything out. Uh, so yeah, absolutely uh, understood that we need we need better solutions. Um, Brenda, you mentioned that there was a lot of requests for national security uh, items, I'm assuming like Department of Homeland Security, um, but then also individual personal items. Um, were how were the trends in terms of what which agencies uh, from where information was being requested? Was it pretty spread evenly across the, the board? So actually, it, it, it's really not distributed equally across the agencies, and definitely agencies such as Homeland Security were seeing the bulk of the requests that came in. Um, and because uh, the caseload is not um, being equally spread across the agencies on, at the federal level, the, the the two professors that were providing the the speech that we were listening to, they they said that they really needed and to take a closer look at management capabilities to kind of get a better understanding or a clearer understanding what, mm -hmm. of what was really going on with uh, the FOIA process. And when we say management capabilities, what, it, what, what they were talking about were things such as staffing, um, the actual cost to process uh, a FOIA uh, request, um, as well as the processing times, which I, I thought was very interesting. Um, with regard to staffing, it, like with the re uh, the request themselves, and it's being a, a uh, not equally distributed across the agencies, they noticed a significant Im imbalance. In fact, they stated that there's basically one full-time staff person for every 189 requests. I just, wow. to me, that's bo mm -hmm. mind-boggling. It, it is, Brenda, but yet I would say that that's probably what we see, even just the people with most of the organizations we work with, is that the lack of staff. You know, it's either there's no one's 100% dedicated or they do have, they're fortunate enough to have a dedicated staff or, or dedicated team, but still the volunteers overwhelm. Yeah, it is. I, I think they also pointed out that there were many government or federal government agencies that didn't have any dedicated staff whatsoever. So basically, mm -hmm. when a FOIA request comes in, it's whoever is available and can help is jumping in and, and trying to do that, which is a very poor process. Even more interesting is they noted that um, even though the agencies that had a, uh, the more staff that they had, they actually had a higher number of backlog. Um, and they really couldn't put their finger on why or uh, to explain why that was um, the case. They said that they, there really was no relationship between the number of staff to the number of requests, that, that it wasn't very straightforward and, and more information would really be needed to, to kind of understand that and why that was happening. That's interesting. And, and again, as a reminder, this is a specific study on FOIA, so federal. Um, but I know that you and I see it, the city, state, county, and, and universities, um, very similar things. So I, I think it's similar throughout, uh, uh, for sure, just this imbalance of staffing and resources to the requests. Yeah, I, there definitely is. Um, another topic that that came up were the processing times, and the, that means you know the, the the average processing time and days that it takes for agencies to to respond or to to return data to the actual requester, and and I they talked about um, the differences between a simple request 
um, and the fact that those the average processing time in days remained fairly consistent for those eight years of uh, that they studied. Um, however, the processing times varied significantly across agencies, and some agencies had incredibly high processing times, even for a simple request. Whereas more complex requests, so requests that you know re involve a lot more amount of data, or they may involve more um, additional information from other agencies, so the data is kind of come in and requested, and it's involving a couple of different departments within an agency, and they need to kind to they need to um, coordinate their efforts and review the documents together. These types of complex requests over the eight years went from an average of 69 days to well over 120 days and counting to process. Wow. Hmm. And that's, it, a, that's a, yeah. I was just going to say, and if you think about it, they're talking about average, when in reality, a lot of these agencies are probably looking at more like three, 400 days of processing. Wow these complex requests. That's incredible. And and I know it's it's easy, obviously, uh, as somebody uh, who's in technology, I see how technology could be a solution. But as what I will add, and again, I understand that the uh, uh, through their research, they couldn't find a direct cause. But at least I know from what we've seen, um, and I think we've said this before in the past webinar, that um, absolutely technology can be a help. but it's also the process around it. It's you know how mature your organization is at understanding uh, the importance of these disclosure requests from the beginning to the end. And so I'm imagining that uh, when it comes to these complex requests where you have different departments, different groups, different people who need to coordinate, it's, it's absolutely having technology that helps you collaborate and coordinate, but also the understanding the process, the business process, the actual internal procedures for getting from beginning to end. But again, that's my commentary, my, my, what I can imagine given what we see with organizations we work with. Um, but I, I'd be curious to see if, as they do more research and studies, if that is in fact the case. Yeah, and I would also have to think that, you know, in, in the day and age that we live in now compared to even eight years ago, nine years ago, in 2008, privacy issues are much more prevalent, right? So they're possibly spending a lot more time looking for and redacting sensitive information, whereas they may not have been, um, or they they probably were, I shouldn't say they may not have been, but they, they probably were, but not to the extent that they are aware of the issues that, that surround the, the, the privacy today. You know, and, and I, I think that's, that's probably also the case is that it, it might have, I mean, while you never want to disclose sensitive or private or, you know, otherwise information, um, these days, if something gets out, it can be spread and disseminated you know, around the globe in a snap of a finger, and it's there forever. Um, I would just I imagine the risk and impact is a lot greater now, whereas maybe there might have been times in the past where, sure, information slipped out, but it didn't spread like it can today. So maybe those are factors. Again, this are just some of my thoughts on it, um, but I'll be curious to see what the, the data and the uh, research uh, shows in the, as we go forward. Yeah, I, I, I will as well. So finally, um, they talked about the cost. And as I said earlier, I mean, the, the costs are just astronomical. Uh, over the, the time period that they were doing their analysis, definitely showed a steady increase in costs. 
In 2016, the costs alone were over a half a billion dollars. That's at the federal level. Wow. Yeah. And that's, that's not, again, not including what states, counties, cities, other municipalities and, and universities uh, have to have to pay. Mm -hmm. okay. Right, right. Um, but Brenda, don't, um, aren't some agencies I know are able to charge some sort of fee to, or, you know, incur, get something reimbursed? Well, they are, but, the, but it's very minimal what they actually are allowed to collect for. And it's things such as deduplication, searching time, um, and the review time. So the time that it would possibly take. Or, or if they actually print it out, they can, I think, pay for the actual cost of printing. Or yes, exactly. So, fees. yep. Okay. So deduplication, copying, things of that nature. Um, but they did, so they did an analysis of the fees as well. Unfortunately, less than 1% of fees are actually collected by these government, these federal agencies. That's less right, than right. 1% of a half a billion dollars. I mean, I guess when you think about the grand scheme of things, when you're talking about the federal government, maybe these costs really aren't that significant because there's other things that we're spending a, a heck of a lot more money on, right? But still, right. it's a lot of money that, that is being um, not collected, but staff time that's mm -hmm. being utilized. And then you get, then the, the, it makes you wonder who's really, who's really paying for these costs? Is it the taxpayers? Well, we all are, yeah, <laughs> we all are. Um, but, but, and I think that that was interesting. One, one point they made, and so on the one hand, um, you know, there is a commitment that, that at the end of the day, there's an obligation, a duty, and a commitment to, you know, release these records to the public. So obviously, the, the, nobody is suggesting the solution is you put up a financial barrier so people won't request anymore because they're going to have to pay top dollar. Because at that point, you're only going to be able to get uh, news agencies who might be able to afford uh, expensive to, to compensate. Um, so, and I do remember they made clear that the, the view of the government is that they understand this is an obligation and that it's a cost and they know they have to pay the, the you know, whatever cost, they know they're going to spend a lot more than they're ever going to recoup. Um, however, there's not a dedicated separated budget for these requests. And I know that might be a challenge to do because, you know, you never know how many requests are going to come in. But what, what was sort of, I think, a challenge is that if it's not, if it's understood that this is a part of overhead cost of doing business, Okay, they're going to pay for it. They're, they're, it's going to get done. But then that makes it a challenge because as we're here sitting and saying, hey, you need to improve some processes and education internally, maybe to bring in some efficient tools so you can be more efficient with this. But if there's no specific, you know, itemized budget, then how can they justify hiring staff, uh, investing in technology and platforms, investing in education um, when there's not a, a dedicated budget for it or it, it's not on them? So that is one of the, the things I noted that might be a challenge to address is that it's great that it's understood that this is uh, a cost that, that the government has to bear and, and will bear. However, if it's just sort of blurred into this larger pot of just, I don't know, we have expenses we have to pay, then it also might make it more challenging for governments and organizations to, to do their planning. And it'll actually cost them more than if they were able to uh, have a better plan and budget and control their costs. Yeah, absolutely. Again, Jay Schneider's opinion. Yep. <laughs> Again, that's just my opinion, uh, uh, not what the researchers were saying, but it's one thing I was noticing. Well, and it's actually something that was brought up by one of the committee members um, after the presentation by these uh, professors was the fact that a comment was made, hey, 
it, it takes getting leadership on board and educating them on the importance of FOIA to help increase their budgets and, and get them the resources that are actually needed. Absolutely. And and so I think I mean, it was with everything, uh, you know, whether we're talking in this context, public records and records disclosure, uh, you know, we also talk where the company is trying to invest in like cybersecurity or whatever the, the item is. There's always that, you know, got to raise that awareness and get everybody on board and invested. It's not just one department's, you know, cause. It's everyone's cause. Um, and I think that is through the leadership in, in it. Um, uh, but it, we definitely need to. It's 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 really that that awareness, that buy-in, and uh, commitment at all levels. Right. I do want to point out as well um, that they said that the data really suggests that the increase in FOIA cost is really unrelated to the increase or the number of requests that are actually being made. So I, I don't know about you, Jay, but to me that suggests that there's some other things going on, um, possibly you know, internal processes, but also the fact that the data has increased significantly, the data types have changed over the years, and the fact that these agencies are not using the, the right tools or technology to address their needs could significantly be increasing their, their FOIA costs. Mm, I see, yeah. So, um, another thing that I really thought was, uh, interesting by, it was another point that was made by a committee member, was the fact that agencies are not being measured on their forma, or their FOIA performance, good or, good or bad. Therefore, there's really no incentive for them to do well or not to do well. I thought that that was very interesting, and, and what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, and I think that kind of goes in line with when we're talking about the that there, there's no specified budget, um, or I mean, again, it's not just about the budget; it's about just this commitment to it. But then also, yeah, if you're if you're not looking at measuring performance, uh, then you're right; it's it's not seen as um, there's not as much focus. You you don't know if you're doing good or bad, or how you can improve. If yeah, if you're not measuring against anything, you don't you don't know how you're doing. Uh, so that is also concerning to me. Um, I don't think it will stay this way uh, forever because it's just going to become more and more of an issue. And unfortunately, uh, you know, organizations and, and tend to have to react and finally get to where they need to be. Uh, but it'd be a lot better if we get more proactive and get this awareness and have have this focus on it uh, to to be a mature organization that can you know handle its its FOIA or public records disclosure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and you, the listeners out there, if you want some more information about a maturity model for your FOIA or open records process, uh, go to our website. We, d we have something out there that you may find informational. Absolutely. So, Brenda, uh, any other big takeaways from uh, the uh, FOIA Advisory Committee? Um, there was just one last parting thought that, um, again, one of the committee members made, and it was the fact that um, when they're looking at these numbers or they're talking about the performance and cost, they really need to also consider how other agency policies or process impact the FOIA performance. Um, and, this, and, and they actually suggested that FOIA officers, unfortunately, sometimes bear the brunt of the blame for things that are really out of their control. So if the agency itself does not have good record keeping practices or you know they're allowing their data to be maintained all over the place or they still rely on paper for you know 
uh, Jade, you know as well as I that we still see plenty of agencies that deal with a lot of paper. That you yes, know, we do. That sometimes these FOIA officers, they're really just doing the best that they can. Absolutely, um, and and I think that's unfortunate. I think as we've mentioned before, uh, you know, a lot of people don't think about disclosing the public records disclosure until you know they're reacting to it. But they really need to think it from the beginning. From the beginning of how are you managing your information from its creation, inception, for time to receive it, uh, knowing with a thought that this document at some point should be or may be released to the public, or they, they might have a right to it. So it's really from the beginning. Um, it really needs to be thought of. Otherwise, it's 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 a lot more time-consuming, costly, and just just a headache. We have all the better things to do than be uh, reacting and putting out fires. Right. So, so so really, my final thoughts on it, Jay, is the fact that um, I think there needs to be a demand for technology, and it needs to be made part of any agency's FOIA capabilities. Um, and you know, maybe if we just a thought, maybe if we're not going after the agencies, maybe we should start marketing our products or to to the public so that they, <laughs> since we just said that they probably are the ones that are bearing the brunt of the cost of a, a lot of these as taxpayers. <laughs> hey, just a thought. <laughs> That's a good point. Huh? The public rallying for- Public uh, rally for FOIA technology. technology. <laughs> exactly. Um, no, that's fantastic. Well, I'm, I'm glad that we were able, our schedules were able to allow us to, to participate in this uh, FOIA Advisory Committee meeting. Um, I definitely look forward to see what comes out, uh, you know, in the future when they, as they continue their studies and research. And again, this was just the federal level. Um, most of what Brenda and I see is really on the ground at the, you know, city, state, and, and local level uh, and in education. So, uh, but it, it's all in line. I mean, we see the same stories everywhere. We definitely see some success stories. Uh, the trick is how can we replicate those success stories, uh, people we work with, that people can adopt those similar processes. And, and I'm sure it all starts with education and awareness. There's still plenty of people who don't even know it's their right to request a record and don't even know what's involved in it. So uh, there's an education factor, it's a process, business factor, and of course, if you haven't gotten the point, technology can help you as well. Yes, absolutely. So Jay, All right. well, what, yeah. uh, I was just going to say, so Jay, what's up next? Well, so uh, this will probably not be the last time we talk about FOIA and public records, of course, but as you know, we like to talk about a lot here. Uh, so in Brendan and my travels over the past uh, several weeks, not only did we travel throughout the U.S., we traveled to our annual Xilab Growth Summit in Amsterdam. Uh, and while we were there, Brenda and I were able to sit down with uh, uh, our CEO of Xilab, Dennis, and we were able to have a chat with him. So I think we're going to include that chat in a future episode. Uh, and Brenda, you know, the uh, recently there were some new TAR guidelines uh, released that I definitely want to make sure we talk about. And you know how you talked about uh, some of the public disclosure uh, and FOIA, you know, simple versus complex, as well as some some other specific uh, items, um, you know, I think we could dedicate an episode or two dedicated specifically on those topics. So there's a lot more exciting things to come up uh, in, in the next episodes, including, guess what, Brenda? What's that, Jay? More trivia. More trivia. Of course, always more trivia. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us again. Uh, we look forward to you, you're hearing our voices uh, again soon. Uh, and definitely, if you uh, want more information on any of these topics, uh, check out 
uh, www.zilab.com where we have resources for you, uh, all of our podcasts, uh, as well as uh, additional information uh, that can help you in your public records, FOIA, or e-discovery, machine learning, artificial intelligence needs. Great. Thanks a lot, everybody. We'll uh, talk to you next time. Thanks, Goodbye. everyone. Take care. Bye.